Alright, sermon. You ready for sermon? Let's do it. Luke chapter 22. Grab your Bible or pull one out of the pew rack. We are continuing our journey through Luke's story of Jesus and his life. And for the last few weeks, we've been with Jesus and his disciples in this upper room in the city of Jerusalem as they've celebrated and feasted and enjoyed the Passover meal, which... Jesus made into the very first Lord's Supper together. But this morning, as we dive into our passage, into this story, Luke shifts the scene on us. Jesus, as he has done every single night for this entire week, decides to leave the city walls and venture out onto a hill on the very eastern edge of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus often after a long day of teaching in the temple, would stop and reflect and debrief on the day's events with his disciples. But on on this particular night, discussion is not what's on Jesus' agenda. Tonight, Jesus needs time with his Father. Tonight, Jesus needs the strength and reassurance that only God can provide. And so he moves away from his men. He kneels down and he prays. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Well, if you didn't catch it, friends, in the reading, this is not the brightest, happiest, most cheerful scene in the Gospel of Luke. It is actually a story about temptation. It's a scene peppered with words and phrases like anguish, temptation, exhausted from sorrow, betrayal, your hour when darkness reigns. And you sort of hear the music like dum-dum-dum in the background. This is a story about the power that dark difficult times of struggle have to separate us from God and take us off the path of his will for our lives. 
And so I've entitled this message, How to Stand Strong in Darkness. Luke tells this story. He tells this story with Jesus as an example to instruct us, to encourage us, to give us a path forward as followers of Jesus in this world that is still, to this day, full of darkness. And so this morning we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at Jesus and how we should pray. We're going to look at the disciples and why we don't pray. We're going to talk about Judas and our motivation to pray. And then finally, we're going to look at the arrest of Christ and ask what happens when we pray and also when we don't. Well, let's start with with, uh, Jesus because that's where Luke starts. He's obviously distressed in this story. Luke, isn't he? Do you pick up a little bit of stress from Jesus? A little bit of turmoil here. Uh, Luke tells us that he's in anguish. The Greek word there is our English word for agony. It's the only place in the Bible where this powerful and passionate word is used. And Jesus is in such agony here that Luke goes as far as to tell us that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. To say that Jesus is stressed is an understatement. So the question is, what's he facing here? What is he staring at that has Jesus in so much agony? We've never seen Jesus like this before. 22 chapters, and he always seems so in control. And yet in this moment, he seems stressed, overwhelmed, almost panicked. What is it that's causing Jesus so much agony? What do you think it is? Is it the cross? Is it the nails? Is it the whipping? Is it the beating? Is it the mockery? Luke actually gives us the answer. In verse 42, Jesus says to the Father, Take this cup from me. This cup that I'm looking at, this cup that I'm staring at, this cup that is staring me in the face is what's causing me so much anguish. Take this cup from me. And friends, the cup in the Bible is a way of talking about God's justice. Jesus is staring straight into the face of God's justice. And let me tell you why that is an absolutely terrifying thing for him. I'll explain it in two ways. We're going to talk about the cup legally, and then we're going to talk about the cup relationally. Let's talk first of all about the cup legally. You know, we all want justice. Did you know that you're a person of justice? Do you know how much you like justice? Do you ever think of yourself that way? I'm a just person and I want justice. Some of you in this room will think, no, I'm not really that way. I don't really like justice. Well, I'll prove to you that you are a person of justice. Right after service, I'll follow you out to your car. I'll take my key and I'll run it it very firmly down the hood of your automobile. And I'll know that you're a person of justice when you decide not to turn to me in that moment and say, thank you, Pastor Dave, for helping me to not be as materialistic as I'm, as I'm tempted to be. <laughs> See, in that moment, you'll realize what I just told you, and that's this, you're a person of justice. You will want justice. You will want someone to pay for the wrongs they've done to you. I know this about you um, because I've observed you in a lot of circumstances. I've seen you on the freeway when someone cuts you off. And some of you use your horn as a way of saying you'll get, you know, audible justice. Some of you 
at a baseball game or basketball game when the ref or umpire makes a bad call, you want justice. Others of you at the grocery store when someone has the audacity to get in front of you with 17 items in the 15 items or less line. You want justice. (laughs) And depending on how and how much of a hurry you are, how much you like your car, how critical of a game or call that it is, your justice quotient will go up or down. But now let's stop and pretend that it's not a car. What if it's not just your car that's hurt? What if it's your friend? Or your sister? Or your husband? Or your mom? You see, what if it's your child? What if someone comes along and hurts your child, bullies your child, neglects your child, abuses your kid? Do you want justice? Do you want someone to pay? You do. You want justice. And here's why. You are created in the image of a just God, a God who can and will not simply say, it's okay. It's just fine. We'll just sweep it under the rug. It's not a big deal that you raped that little girl or lied or killed or stole or slandered. Why? Because God says, those are my kids. And so we serve a God of justice. And now I want to expand your view just a bit. Don't just think about your world. Don't just think about your life. Think about the entire scope of human history. Think for a minute about Hitler. Fun things to think about in church today. But when you remember Hitler in moments like these and the mothers that lost children and the families that were torn apart and the people who were not just gassed or shot but experimented on and tortured and killed. When you think about all the evil and injustice and oppression throughout the history of humanity and in the entire world and then you think about how much justice... How much would someone have to pay to make all of it okay? How much would it take? How much pain and suffering if it was just your kid, but when you extrapolate that out to every single person in the history of our planet that's ever been hurt or wronged, think about how much justice. You see, that's this cup that Jesus stares at. Jesus is staring straight into the face of bearing the burden, paying the penalty for all the wrong, for all the evil, for all the injustice and oppression that has ever happened and ever will happen in the entire history of our world. Can you imagine taking on that kind of a penalty? Can you imagine the pain and torture and penance that Jesus is taking. You see, there is so much wrapped up here. Sometimes we get this sense that Jesus died on the cross because, you know, I did that one bad thing or said that bad word on accident. Or there was that moment back in college, right? But no, friends, Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the entire human race, for all of creation. And that is what he is staring at in this moment. And so legally, God says, someone has to pay And it will be my son. He will take the cup of my justice. 
That's the legal way of thinking about it. Now let me talk to you just for a moment about the relational way. Think about it this way. And this will be fun for you. Imagine uh, one of you who I don't even know. Maybe someone who is here for the very first time. We've never met. I don't know you. You don't really know me. Imagine someone like that comes down after the service to talk to me and says, Pastor Dave, that was the worst sermon I have ever heard. In fact, you're the worst pastor I've ever experienced. I don't like you. I think you're a crummy preacher. Your clothes are lame. Your beard looks shaggy. You're ugly. You have a puny little nose and beady little eyes and that giant chin. I mean, you're the worst ever. I am leaving and I will never, ever come back to this church. Would that hurt my feelings? Would that hurt my feelings? It would hurt my feelings. So let's not do that, right? But what if it was someone who I knew pretty well? Someone who's like a member of our church family who has been around for a long time, who I know and I'm connected with. What if they came down and told me the same things? Would it hurt even just a little more? What if it was someone here who I'm really close with? What if it was one of my good friends? What if Matt said these things to me right after the service? He never would do that, by the way. He's always very encouraging. But what if he did? It would hurt even more. What if my wife said that? You're awful. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. How deep would the pain be? You see, friends, here's the point. The closer you are to somebody, the more their rejection and the more, their, the more separation from them causes you pain. Now listen to this quote. The greatest marriage in the history of the world is like a drop in the Pacific Ocean compared to the love between the Father and the Son. And now because of sin, now because of this cup of God's justice, Jesus will be rejected by and separated from His Father. Do you understand now why He sweats drops of blood? What He's facing in this moment and in this cup is almost unfathomable to us. So the question is, how does Jesus handle it? How does he face this darkness? How does he walk this road of suffering and pain? The answer is prayer. That's what we're talking about today. And not just prayer defined as aiming some flowery flowery words up into heaven, but prayer defined as deeply connecting with the Father. Father, Jesus says, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Four things for you about Jesus' prayer. First of all, prayer. Jesus makes space for it. It says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. You see, Luke makes a point here of telling us that Jesus creates some space. He gets alone with his Father. He gets face to face with his Father in isolation. He carves out time. He carves out space. He carves out energy so that he can connect with God. There's a story about a a, a tribe in Central Africa um, that came to Christ, that 
received the good news and gave their lives to Jesus. And since they had no church building, they cleared a central spot in the middle of the jungle where they could gather together for prayer. And soon, there were all these trails from all these different huts and homes and villages that converged on this this one central spot, this prayer spot. And whenever a convert seemed to be losing his first love or his enthusiasm, enthusiasm, other believers would admonish him by saying this, Brother, the grass is growing on your path. Is the grass growing on your path? Do you make space for regular, intentional, isolated and committed time with God? Because if you want to have a prayer life that sustains you in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the trials and temptations of this world, you must, like Jesus, make space for it. Next, we see that Jesus shows us sincerity in it. We notice in this passage that Jesus does not just tell God what he wants to hear. He doesn't say, God, whatever you want sounds great. You know, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Jesus says, I don't want this. I don't like this. I am not looking forward to this. Is there any other way, Lord? Can there be another plan? Jesus is honest with the Father about his emotions, about his feelings, about his thoughts. When was the last time, friends, you told God that you were angry, confused, frustrated, annoyed, scared, worried, anxious, apprehensive, sad, grieved, regretful? Did you even know that you were allowed to, that you were supposed to? A couple years ago, when we first moved here, we discovered that it rains a lot. (laughs) And as a result of a lot of rain, which as it turns out is just really an average amount of rain compared to this year, um, I went into a really dark depression. They called it sad, which is exactly how I felt. Seriously annoyed at the disgusting weather. Um, And I'll tell you this just so you're not panicked since then my body seems to have chemically rebounded and so this year i feel great even amidst the uh, tremendous amounts of precipitation but that year i did not and it is one of the darkest seasons of my life Um, been through a few dark times but that time was dark and i remember a few nights getting real honest with god and just saying lord i don't get it How in the world could you bring me up here and call me to this church and then utterly abandon me? I've never felt so alone. I've never felt more abandoned by God. And I was angry and I was confused and I was upset and I was sad and I was scared to death. But at the same time, it was one of the best times for me because it's maybe one of the times I've been most honest with my Heavenly Father. And I think God loves that because that's where He meets us and we see that in Jesus here. There's just a sincerity in this prayer from from Christ to his Father. Next we see that in this prayer, there's submission, that there's submission around it. If you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. You see, Jesus has this ability to be honest about his will, his wants, his desires, and yet at the same time, fully submitted to the Father's. Are you fully submitted to the Father's will? 
especially in the midst of your suffering, especially in the midst of your struggles and pain and difficulty, do you continue to come back to this one simple question, God, what is your will? Here's how I feel. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's the honesty of my reality. And yet, in the midst of it, I long to see it from your perspective. What's your will, Father, for how I should act in this moment? What's your will for how I should respond to this person? What's your will for my response in this situation that feels so wrong and out of control? You see, submission isn't as long as it's easy and nice and we agree we'll go along. That's not submission. Submission says, I'll follow you even when it's hard. I'll trust you even when it's difficult. Even when I don't get it or can't see the full picture, I'll follow you because I trust you, because you're trustworthy. And Jesus knows there was no one more trustworthy than the Father. And then finally, as we take a look at Jesus' prayer, we see strength through it. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling falling to the ground. What we noticed here is that Jesus goes to the Father in prayer, and he gets strength. There's like this image of an angel coming down and strengthening him. And you'd think after that moment, it would say, an angel came and strengthened Jesus, and he rose up and gave the disciples a pep talk. But what does it say? It says, he gets strengthened, and it gets even tougher even harder. He has to pray more earnestly. Those words more earnestly in Greek describe a muscle that is stretched to its very limit. Have you ever stretched a muscle in your body to its very limit? You ever had, have you ever gone to like a masseuse who stretches you? Like a physical trainer and they stretch you and they, and they say, tell, tell me when I can't go any farther. And you say, stop. And then they push a little more. Jesus leans into prayer exactly that way. Not because God makes it easy, but because he knows God is giving him strength for the journey. An angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So we see this diligence from Jesus in prayer. And it's only highlighted by the contrast um, we see in the disciples. When he rose, when Jesus rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. I would be super angry. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Here's the irony of this scene. And Luke seems to have some irony in almost every scene. But I've loved thinking about this scene. Can you imagine in our day if the disciples and Jesus went to a psychologist and they said, hey, um, you know, we're struggling. This is, there's some heavy stuff coming our way. It's intense. There's a lot of pain and fear and anxiety in our lives right now. Like this whole persecution and cross and death thing is coming our way and we're not dealing with it well. And can you imagine the psychologist going, well, um, are you sleeping okay? And the disciples are like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're sleeping great. Well, how about Jesus? Oh, he's not sleeping at all. Oh. You see, who seems to be handling the stress of this moment better from a worldly perspective? The disciples. They're not up at night. They're sleeping like babies. Jesus is sweating drops of blood. He's an absolute, like, psychotic wreck right now. Uh, 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 So it seems. And so here we have the disciples 
Jesus comes back, they are sleeping, and I think the question is, why? Why do they sleep? Are they just oblivious? Are they oblivious to the pain that's coming? No. Luke tells us they're sleeping. Why? They're exhausted from sorrow. You see, the disciples are finally starting to see where this is going. After everything that Jesus has told them, after all he's said to them in the upper room, it's finally starting to hit them. Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. They are going to lose their leader and be co-conspirators in a plot against the Roman Empire. And in the face of this stress, as Jesus battles and wrestles and engages with the Father, the disciples cash it in for a nap. They are exhausted from sorrow and they decide to sleep instead of pray. Let me ask you this. Where do you go when life gets tough and darkness comes? Where are you tempted to escape to? You see, what if instead of sleep or television or work or food or numbing substances or just turning to games on your phone? What if instead of escaping from our problems, we were more like Jesus and we persistently brought them to the Lord? You see, the disciples are exhausted from sorrow, but instead of engaging God, instead of praying as they're instructed to do, they just decide to take a nap. Do you ever do this? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night? Something on your mind? You don't want it to be there, but it's just going. And you can't go back to sleep. For me, sometimes that happens and there's a little voice in my soul that says, why don't you pray about it, Dave? I I just want to go back to sleep. I just want to ignore it for a few more hours with my head on the pillow. I don't really want to deal with it. You see, one of the problems I think we have with prayer is that we think it should be easy. And when it's not easy... We think we must not be doing it right, so we quit. You see, friends, one of the messages of this passage is that prayer takes work. It takes energy and intentionality and persistence and perseverance, especially in the face of difficulty. So often when we think of prayer, it's this quiet, peaceful time where all the worries and stress of our lives simply float away because God just makes us feel good. And that sometimes, maybe, might happen. But certainly not in this passage. Most of the time in the Bible, prayer looks more like battle. It looks more like a wrestling match. It's a place of agony and struggle. It's a place where fear and worry and anxiety are fended off, but not without effort. It takes intentionality and work. And we just want it to be calm and peaceful and serene and simple. And that's not the picture of prayer in the scriptures, certainly not in the face of darkness. In our recent staff retreat we had a few weeks ago, I told you our staff went away and we were talking about the church and we spent some time in prayer and we did this really neat exercise where we put a bunch of stuff up on the wall, things that we loved about what God was doing at our church, things we felt like were going right and that we wanted to continue to do and then some things that we felt like needed some more clarification and other things that were more confusing and some things that were like wrong that we needed to fix, some things that we needed to, to turn the temperature up on. And then every single staff member got a marker, like a different colored marker, and it was like, vote for two items on each list. And the number one vote getter from our staff on the list of, we need to 
get this going. We need to turn the temperature up. We need to up the ante here. The number one vote getter on the list was prayer. Our staff is saying we need to raise the intentionality and temperature of prayer in our church. And so we're starting. It's coming. We're going to be talking to you about prayer and pushing you into prayer and pressuring you to pray and talking about prayer some more and asking you to not just dabble, but to dive into deeper and deeper connections with the Father. Just like our Lord did. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but when Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas shows us our motivation to pray, and here it is. Prayer is vital, friends, because sin is deceitful. Prayer is vital because sin is deceitful. You never notice this about sin? It never announces itself. Like you never like surf the web and there's a big you know page, the home page says, Warning, sin that will wreck your life. Click here. Just click here and I'll wreck your marriage. Just try me this one time and I'll eventually ruin your life. You see, sin never advertises itself that way. Sin always presents as good, tantalizing, harmless, simple. This kiss represents the deceptive nature of sin, how twisted it becomes, how it pretends to be something less offensive and less destructive and even something innocent or pure. How hard does sin work to disguise itself in your life? You see, it's so hard to see it. It's so hard to see the places where you're being lured off the path of following God unless, unless you're connected with the Father in prayer. You see, I wonder at this point if Judas can even see his betrayal or if he's somehow convinced himself that what he is doing is acceptable, justified, or even good. Got any areas like that in your life? You see, we, wa- we watch the scene, we imagine it in our brains, and we think, how could he do it? How could he betray Jesus? And with a kiss! And yet how many times, even just yesterday, did you walk up and kiss Jesus on the cheek? by engaging something that on the surface seems innocent or harmless, something that you've justified. Friends, prayer is vital because sin is deceitful. There's something about prayer that exposes sin, that shows us its true colors and its nature and the path that it will take us on. Prayer is vital because sin is deceitful and it wants to deceive you. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In this arrest, we discover what happens when we pray and what happens when we don't. Isn't it amazing how the scene has suddenly shifted? How at the beginning of this story, Jesus was the one who seemed to be out of control, stressed out, panicked, flailing a bit. And now all of a sudden, after wrestling with his father in prayer, and after the disciples have had a long, nice nap, they flip roles. The very man who's come to offer the cup of suffering and God's justice to Jesus 
Jesus heals him as if to say, I'm following God's plan. I'm walking down God's path no matter where it leads. And the disciples are all of a sudden scrambling, trying to take control on their own, clinging to power and force, saying, we can solve this problem. We can fight our way out of this darkness ourselves while Jesus just now follows the Father. See, friends, when we pray, we can respond God's way. And and that might seem a little cheesy, but it is so true. You cannot respond God's way in your own strength. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the cross. In, In your own strength and by your own effort, you will always walk your own path. The only way you can walk God's path is in God's strength. And the only way you can tap into God's strength is by connecting with the Father in prayer. When we pray, we can go God's way. And that's what we see in Christ here. Do you find it amazing that he heals the very man who wants to arrest him while the disciples wield swords? No more of this, he says. No more of this. No more fighting kingdom battles in your own strength. Instead, fight in God's strength. Be connected to the Father. Pray so that you won't fall into this temptation. The temptation of trying to live the Christian life on your own with your own power and not God's power. So friends, this morning as we come to the table, as the ushers actually pass the elements for us, as we get ready to take this meal, we remember where our strength comes from. We remember that our strength does not come from within. We remember that our fight is not um, from ourselves, that we don't muster up our own strength, that we don't wield swords, that we don't come into darkness and difficulty and struggle um, with our own power and solutions, but that we come, as Christ followers, people connected to the Father. Connected to the Father because we are not separated from Him because Jesus was separated from Him at the cross. Our flesh is connected. Our salvation is connected to the Father. And we can live connected to Him because Christ wasn't connected. And so this morning, friends, let me ask you this. As we prepare to take these elements, would you think about prayer? Would you think about your prayer life? What it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what God might be asking you to do, what he might be inviting you into, the kind of relationship that he wants to have with you because this dark hour that Luke talks about, we're still living in it. And for many of you, it's come and it will come again. And if you haven't experienced it now, it will come later. And Jesus says, be ready. Be ready to face the darkness as my followers by being connected to the Father through me. Ushers, come forward and pass the elements out for us. Hold on to them and we'll receive them together in just a moment.